Good morning again and welcome to Church of the Cross. My name is Peter Coelho. I'm also one of the pastors here on staff. During the 2012 election, the campaign to re-elect President Obama invited potential voters to contrast the policies of the president with those of Governor Romney, his opposing candidate, in a creative way. Through a website, voters were invited to track along with the fictitious life of Julia, an apparent example of the average American woman, and to consider side by side how the different policies and positions of the two candidates would affect her life. Things like health care, job creation, child care, retirement. You can imagine the findings. Predictably enough, President Obama's policies and positions were consistently seen to benefit Julia's life. That's what you'd expect. It was his campaign. But more interesting than the explicit political message, however, was what a number of commentators across the political spectrum noticed. They noticed that the life depicted in the life of Julia, from cradle to grave, only really involved interactions with government agencies, with state and federal agencies. These bodies were depicted as normative for Julia's life, determining its qualities. Other than a, a quick mention of her parents and one child at a point, no other relationships or institutions were mentioned. No friendships, no extended family, no neighborhood association or little league sports. Julia's life as depicted was devoid of those kind of affiliations or relationships. They're either non-existent or irrelevant to her quality of life. In some, she has no community. The question of community, of what does it mean to share life, what does it mean to live well together, these are questions that haunt us. Just this week, Harper's Bazaar published a story with the title, Men Have No Friends. Slate Magazine picked up the story with an examination of how boys are raised to be independent, without peer support, without the capacity to ask for help or build lasting relationships. A book last week came out entitled, Alienated America, seeking to describe, quote, the collapse of civil society in America accounting for declining rates of family stability, of marriages, of voting, volunteer work, religious participation. One reviewer of the book wrote, humankind's distinction among the animals is that we deliberate together to shape a shared life. This is core to who we are and to our flourishing. We were made for community. We struggle to live without it. We do not flourish without it. And yet just as much we struggle to make community, to share life together. Our reading this morning from Acts chapter 9 gives us a glimpse, a brief portrait of a community, of a shared life in action. In the language of our other readings, the prayer we just prayed together, this is a glimpse into the community of the good shepherd. That is the community shepherded, led by Jesus the risen one. And as a glimpse of this community led by the risen Christ, this reading might be instructive for us today as we seek to be a similar kind of community, even in the midst of 
these times of alienation and estrangement. As a church, we seek to be shepherded by the same risen Lord. And what we see this morning in Acts 9 might be instructive for our life in a couple of ways. I think from this passage, we can glean two features of this community. We can learn from reading Acts chapter 9 that this is a community of imitation. A community of imitation. We can also see that it's a community of interdependence. A community of interdependence. This morning, what I simply want to do is examine these two features of this community. Look at where they come to light in this passage. And consider how they might shape our common life to our flourishing, to our life together. Let's pray. Gracious and almighty God, we thank you for gathering us this morning. We thank you for the gift of the words of Scripture, the gift of Acts chapter 9. And we thank you for the ways that your spirit worked and empowered Luke to remember and write down these words. And we pray now that that same spirit would move among us this day, would draw us to yourself, and more fully make us your own. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. First, the church as a community of imitation. The word imitation might strike us as a little bit off for us. If you were like me, you were raised to believe you were a unique and precious snowflake. One like, unlike any other. And we're called to often pursue our muse, pursue the individuality that we've been given, the unique passions and pursuits that we have. The interesting thing as you scroll through Instagram is that as we each pursue our individuality, our lives often look so much the same. We're imitators in some way. And as the community of the Good Shepherd, the church is called to shape its life in imitation of that shepherd. As the followers of the risen Jesus, the church imitates his way of life individually and corporately. The center of our reading, it is, of course, the dramatic resuscitation of Tabitha or Dorcas. Much as Jesus is raised from the dead, Tabitha here is raised up. There's a a certain imitation there. But the imitation of Jesus is apparent in other more subtle ways as well. Tabitha is named as a disciple, a disciple of Jesus. In the language of our gospel, she's one who knows Jesus' voice and follows it. Picking up from the sermon two weeks ago, we might say Tabitha lives in the name of Jesus according to the pattern of life that he taught and exemplified. In the time of this writing, the writing of Acts, to be a disciple was to be an adherent to a certain rabbi or teacher's teachings, the the way of life that they called you to and exemplified. She has apprenticed herself to Jesus. I have a number of friends or family members who have pursued a living in trade, as tradespeople in plumbing or carpentry or electrical work. And to become a master carpenter or a mechanic or electrician involves apprenticeship. Beyond classroom time or theory alone, to master these trades involves watching, working alongside, working under the supervision of a master, that you might come to exemplify their pattern of work, their way of doing the job. 
This is what Tabitha has sought to do. This is how she comes to be known as a disciple. To be a disciple, she has aligned herself to Jesus' way of life and patterns her life after his. We see this imitation in the description of her life, right? She's full of good works and acts of charity. And the passage goes on as the widows explain what she has meant to them, and it fleshes out some of what that looked like. As a seamstress, it seems, Tabitha used her skill, her experience, what she had to serve and bless those in need around her, just as Jesus himself had done. Today is Mother's Day, of course, and there's something of a mother's service and commitment in the example of Tabitha. I'm pretty sure I've said this before, but there are few greater examples of clear Christ-likeness to me as as the way of a mother laying down her life for a newborn child. You think of foregoing sleep, if nursing, giving physically of their own body strength and nutrition for that of their child. The same imitation of Christ we see in Tabitha. There's no mention of physical relationship that she has with these people. They're not related to her. But she gives of herself nonetheless. The description of Tabitha's life here reminds me of this wonderful passage in C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce where one elderly woman identified as a mother to everyone she ever met parades through heaven surrounded by legions of adoring men, women, and children. The people she has served in her life, she's beloved for that blessing and service. Such a life is an imitation of Christ's own who came, of course, not to be served, but to serve. This same pattern of life is to mark out our existence as a community of the Good Shepherd, a community following the way of the cross, This very weekend saw members of Church of the Cross engage with Harris Elementary School in basic service, putting together this storage container there. And others from our community learning about opportunities to serve some of the most vulnerable members of our community at Hope Medical Clinic. Such activities can be undertaken for all manner of reasons, with all manner of motivations. For the church, part of the reasons these actions are done is that they're done in imitation of Jesus. They're done in his name. This is what it means to be a community of Christ, to pattern our lives individually and corporately after his. We cultivate the same virtues and qualities we see in him among ourselves. We engage in the same way of life, the same self-giving love we see exemplified in him. Some of us came of age during the prominence of WWJD, what would Jesus do, that bracelet. In and of itself, that is a wonderful sentiment, perhaps. But in my experience, it was often very narrowly interpreted. Do these certain things, abstain from these certain behaviors. That's what Jesus would do. The imitation, it seems to me, that's on display in Acts chapter 9, the imitation that seems to be at work in Tabitha's life is something deeper, richer, more holistic. It's this way of self-giving love. She has entered in to that way. We as the church are called to enter into this same way. One of the blessings we have in life together is the opportunity to serve one another. Right now, people are serving us, serving our children in the garden. There's opportunities in hospitality and all these other ways. 
part of the blessing of that service to one another is it's an opportunity to pattern our lives after Jesus. The gift of opportunities like Hope Clinic, like those at Harris, are that they allow us to follow in the way of Jesus, to shape us. We're blessed to have opportunities to serve. Tabitha, of course, is not the only one in the passage who imitates Christ. There's not uniformity when it comes to imitating Jesus. I think of the passage in the New Testament that we read from Revelation chapter 7. This people gathered in the name of Jesus, but worshiping him with their own tongue and knowing him as their own people in their own identities. Peter, too, in our passage, imitates Jesus, but he does it in a way that's somewhat distinct from Tabitha. This isn't like the Borg, if you know Star Trek, where you have to assimilate and everyone looks precisely the same. The imitation of Christ looks different often in your life and mine, depending on who God has made us to be. But Peter, too, follows in Jesus' steps in a, in a very clear way. Peter's actions here in Tabitha's resuscitation, the, the putting out of the mourners, the taking of her hand, the command to rise, these are all actions that are explicitly described, Jesus does, in an earlier raising. In Luke chapter 8, the raising of Jairus' daughter. Peter, it seems, is following the script that he knew Jesus had laid out for him. Following in the footsteps, imitating the good shepherd. What are we to make of this? In what way, in what way might Peter's imitation of Jesus here, in the face of death, be, imitated, be normative for us. There's something about Peter's actions here, even as they're patterned after Jesus, that are perhaps a little discomforting for us. Am I at the next funeral I go to, supposed to get up there with the, the casket and pray for resuscitation? There's something off-putting. In his actions there, we're perhaps reminded that the imitation of Jesus involves actions that make sense to us, right? Helping out at the local public school, seeking the common good, that makes sense to us. But in Peter, we see it may also include behaviors and patterns of living that give us pause, that confound our expectations culturally, their counterculture, they rub against the grain of the way life goes. Things like be holy just as your heavenly Father is holy. Take up your cross, turn the other cheek. Blessed are you when others revile you on account of me. To follow where the good shepherd leads, to pattern ourselves after him means that we will, as a community together and in our individual lives, be called to things that are discomforting, be called to things we may rather not do, that are countercultural. John Stott, the famous 20th century preacher and evangelist, at the end of a gospel presentation, would invite people to come forward, but he would only do so after the dismissal, so that hundreds of people would be streaming out. And he would call people forward to put their trust in Jesus, and he says, to come forward, you will have to go upstream, but you might as well get used to it, because to follow the good shepherd is to go upstream. There's something of the imitation of Jesus that will require of us 
to die to the idea that everything we do will be acceptable. We have to die to the idea that we'll never be made uncomfortable, that we'll never be called to things that challenge or conflict with our culture, the assumptions, the idols that we have in our own lives. Yet the question still stands, are are we called to expect and practice the same kind of prayer and action that Peter does here? In Matthew chapter 10, verse 8, Jesus instructs his 12 initial disciples, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You know, remarkable study miracles by the scholar Craig Keener. He documents numerous contemporary claims from around the world regarding resuscitations like the one depicted in Acts 9. Many of them are deeply compelling. For the community of the Good Shepherd, those following an imitation of Jesus, death, it seems, is not to be considered the obstacle it once was. Even as it remains, Tabitha, presumably, will go on to die. They don't keep resuscitating her. There are experiences I've had where the faith-filled thing seems clearly to let the person go. At the same time, in his entire public ministry, in his death upon the cross, in his resurrection at Easter, Jesus seems to live in a way that assumes that the love of God is more powerful than death. That it's stronger than the way things are in a world of sin, injustice, and brokenness. Jesus lives out of the conviction that the life at work in him, the love of God, they are stronger, stronger than injustice, than disease, than death. And that should inform our imitation of him. That should inform the pattern of our living. So yes, for some of us, this may mean in a very basic way that we find ourselves in some situation praying for the rolling back of death. To be a community shaped by Easter reality means at times we pray for the seemingly impossible. We live in expectancy that the love of God, the power of God is stronger. What it also means, I think, for each and every one of us, for our community, is that we are called to pattern our living in such a way that we would refuse to take the darkness, the darkness and brokenness of the world as definitive. They do not get the last word. So people can give themselves then to actions of generosity, to justice, peace, and holiness in his name. Extravagant generosity, this wholehearted commitment to justice, even as it is costly, the working out of our salvation, even when it rubs up against cultural expectation, even when it rubs up against comfort, we can give ourselves to these things, knowing that his kingdom is final, knowing that he has the last word. You might ask, well, what does that actually look like? I have a very practical, probably wonkish and uninspiring example for you. When we began as a church, even before we had begun worshiping, we, I'm going to, you're going to be like, oh yeah, that is a boring example. We formed a finance team. Exciting. (laughs) We wanted to steward well the funds of the church and the life of the church financially. And that finance team, as we formed, we talked about learning from other churches, and people on the team had experience in finance in different arenas, and we talked about following best practices. 
and the need to do so. But we also talked about how we serve a God of abundance. We serve a God of new life and resurrection. And so we wanted to recognize that there might be times where best practices would lead us to one decision, to the less risky decision. But we'd recognize there would be moments where the faith-filled action was to lay it on the line, was to extend ourselves, was to be extravagantly generous perhaps, or to take that risk, trusting in the Lord's provision. This is something, I think, of what this means, that we don't allow, quote-unquote, the way things are to define our actions as we follow Jesus. Yes, there's wisdom, and there's so much to learn from in the world. We take that into account. But there must, at the last, be a recognition that we serve a God who spoke life into a dead body and that brokenness and darkness did not have the last word, do not have the last word. As we live in such a way, we're imitators of Christ. It's a community of imitation. Our reading this morning also suggests that the community of the Good Shepherd is a community of interdependence. I suspect many of us have heard this word. It's kind of a buzzword in some way. We know it, but perhaps we don't have much experience. You're like, I have experience of codependence, and I have experience of radical independence, right? My family is broken, estranged in this profound way. But the church, the glimpse of the church we get here is a community of interdependence. Tabitha's example is, of course, front and center for us this morning, her good works, her charity. But notice also the ways, too, that she is served and reliant upon others. She spends most of the passage dead. It's hard to be more reliant on others than that. Her reliance is in Peter's prayer and presence. It's in the two men sent to urge him to come. It's in the widow's longing to see that Tabitha would be raised to life. You see, Tabitha, as exemplary as she is, is nested in this web of relationships. She is dependent on others, much as they are dependent upon her. The widows in particular, like I said, speak to this, right? There's something beautiful about the vigil they keep around her and about these tokens of her commitment to them, these garments that she has sewn. The whole text speaks of this familial bond that these people share, a web of service and commitment that she is caught into. This past week saw the death of Jean Vanier at the age of 90. He was a French-Canadian thinker and Catholic founder of the L'Arche communities. These are communities throughout the world where people with and without intellectual and physical disabilities live and work together in this profound way they share life. Henry Nouwen famously spent many of his final years living in a L'Arche community, partnered in life and work with Adam, a man with deep physical and intellectual challenges. In describing the unique quality of life that people find at L'Arche, Vanier once remarked, people come to community because they want to help the poor, but they stay in community because they realize they are the poor. They recognize their need, their lack, their helplessness. It's striking to me that Tabitha's resuscitation is described as causing many to believe many to come to faith in Jesus. 
fruitful as her life and service were, full of good works, the text says. It seems as though Tabitha's most powerful witness arises in her weakness, the context of her death. Her need before the community is more transformative, more fruitful. Something about her weakness reveals the strength of this community that God has fashioned, the power of God, leading others to faith. It's clear Tabitha exists for us as an example is in her imitation of Jesus, her practical service to others, her care for those we might easily ignore. But she may also be an example for us in this. It may be that our greatest gifts for community, for the mission of the church, include our need, our lack, our weakness, our vulnerabilities, brought into the open and born together. One of my favorite biblical images of community, I've used it before in talking about neighborhood groups, is, comes from Mark chapter 2. It's the story of the paralytic brought by his friends to see Jesus. Crowded out of the home where Jesus is teaching, the friends climb up on the roof, they dig a hole down and lower the paralytic in. There's this radical commitment to their friend. And on account of the friend's faith, Jesus forgives the sins of the paralyzed man and heals him. To me, that's this wonderful image of Christian community, a group of people who will bring you to Jesus when you cannot get yourself there on your own. Truth be told, I often conceive of myself as one of the friends holding up the stretcher, leading the charge, maybe kicking down the door, bringing the weak and broken to Jesus. It's glorious, at least in my mind's eye. Storming the gates for God, part of this community of winners for Jesus, you know? More often than I would like to admit, the reality is I'm the one on the stretcher. And the example of Tabitha is that the greatest gift we may bring to community is our weakness, our need. Because it's in these spaces where the glory of God is revealed, where his perfect strength is made known, often through the body of Christ, like the people around us, as others help me, help us get to Jesus. Community is for human flourishing, but the flourishing is not found in the displays of our own prowess and ability. The gift of community is not that I now have an audience to display my goodness and greatness. The blessing, the flourishing that comes through community is in the help we receive the support, the meeting of Christ at our points of weakness through one another. You think of that community of winners, of people who've got it all together. It's actually quite similar to the life of Julia. Where there's no need, there's very little community. Many of us come to this community at Church of the Cross as people of great capability successful in work, at school, with gifts and abilities to be brought to bear. And for some of us, the challenge, the invitation of Acts chapter 9 today is to imitate Jesus, to utilize those abilities and gifts more fully in the service of others. That is the call of God upon our lives, that the church might be built up in the likeness of Jesus, an imitative body of him. We need to get more fully in the game. But it seems just as likely to me that for many of us, the challenge lies in interdependence. 
The challenge is actually on the ability to bring our need, our weakness, out into the open. We're uncomfortable to receive care. You're like, this isn't a normal thing. I'll, I'll make it up to you in some kind of way. We're uncomfortable in acknowledging the brokenness of our lives of coming apart before others. But the beauty of the gospel is that in our weakness, God's strength is made perfect. And the beauty of the church is that it may yet be just such a community where we can find, like Tabitha, that our weakness, our helplessness can become the arena where God's power and beauty are displayed most clearly. Where we can rest in the reality that we are a family of one faith, one hope, one baptism, drawn together in interdependence. So the challenge for you may be to take courage and to bring that burden, that wound, that brokenness, that vulnerability out into the open. That you might rest upon others. So the community of the Good Shepherd, it's a community of imitation and a community of interdependence. And just in closing, there's one other feature that's subtly there in our passage. As the church, I'd suggest to you, patterns its life after Christ, as it does so together deeply, the church is this expansive community that draws others in. Peter, in our passage, is in Lydda. The passage itself takes place in Joppa. These are communities that are a little further out from Jerusalem where the action has all been thus far in the book of Acts. In the next chapter, in Acts chapter 10, Peter will take the news of the gospel to the Gentiles, to those previously excluded. And even in our passage this morning, he, he goes up to the upper room, this place of uncleanliness, of death in this case. And the passage concludes with him staying with Simon the Tanner. This person who, because of his profession, his trade, would have been excluded. The whole sweep, the whole narrative of the book of Acts is that a community that is imitative of Jesus, patterned after his life, that does so together, webbed together, breaking bread together, devoted to life together, in the power of his Holy Spirit, will be expansive, will draw others in. It is attractive and life-giving. A community that gives itself to the way of Jesus, that does so together in the power of his spirit, is wonderfully attractive in drawing others in. May it be so among us. Let's pray. Gracious and almighty God, we thank you for the gift of life together in you. We thank you for the gift of the way of the cross. That even it has difficult things, things we don't understand, things we'd rather not do. We know that it is the way of life, the way of peace, the everlasting way. Would you give us this morning courage to follow after you? And would you give us all that we would need to share in life together? And I pray specifically for those of us who would know that we're carrying wounds, would know that we have burdens, 
would you even in the next days, the next week, provide for us opportunity and courage, wisdom and discernment to come forth with our vulnerabilities, our need? And would you empower us as a community to bear one another's burdens well, to live in the vision of your church that Acts gives us for the glory of your name and that others might be drawn to know you. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.